episode 92 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 21st of June, 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Yeah, we're recording on a Sunday evening this time, so a day early, which means the show will probably go out a little bit early, but uh, otherwise it should be the same. We are going to talk about my new Pinebook Pro and how that ties in with something that you were thinking about, Will, last time we recorded. But first, we're going to do some news. And the first one is that Facebook have done a good thing by doing a bad thing. They paid someone to develop a zero day in Tails in order to catch a very bad person but then didn't tell tales about it. And this is a very confusing story from a moral point of view. I wish there was a process for this that was kind of signed into by all the people who have this kind of power, um, like like a moral code of honour. So catching this person is a good thing. The way that they've gone about it is exactly what I'd expect of Facebook, which is just disappointing. (laughs) Um, I completely agree with Bruce Schneier. It's a good thing that people are allowed to use these kind of exploits to catch bad people. It's a bad thing if it's done against like the, the Tails project, um, which they, they didn't tell the Tails project about the exploit that they paid for. They must have told them about it now, right? Because it's in the news. So is the problem with this is that they didn't tell them right away. And so they could have or people could have used this exploit against people who were not quite as bad as this other person, for example, and that would have been okay? Or is the problem that they didn't just simply tell Tails immediately? Well, the problem seems to be the fact that they saw that Tails was going to strip out vulnerable code in an upcoming release, so they just didn't bother to tell them whatsoever, which I think is a bit questionable in the fact that someone may not upgrade when it says we've cleaned up code to fix the video player but then you know there's no specific security alert for it whereas if facebook said we have a zero day in the video player everybody's going to update straight away and you'd have to wonder about somebody you know it could be a human rights activist in a a country where there's a very questionable government and they're going to go oh lovely we'll use this so and people weren't notified that it's a security update are gonna be affected i can only guess uh, but i would imagine that the engineers who work at Facebook that knew about this probably wanted to report this in the correct manner as soon as possible. I wonder if there were the powers that be were um, restricting who knew about it and what they were allowed to do about it so that they could keep this one up their sleeve um, and use it next time. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but either way, it had a good outcome this time, but who knows what the outcome will be next time. Maybe it won't be as positive. We might not even know. That's the awful thing. Mm, yeah. Various journalists locked up all over the world for all kinds of things. You know, who knows? And it's getting to the point where the only people who can afford to kind of, as they say, blow six figures on this uh, is going to be the four or five large tech companies that will have the knowledge and have the resources to fund it. All right, let's talk about Bounty Source. Now, this is a service where if you're an open source project, you can put up bounties for bugs or features that you want in your software. And so you can put up a certain amount of money, say, you you know, $1,000 or whatever for this feature, and then someone can write that code and then claim that $1,000. That was all well and good until this week when they said they were going to change their terms of service. What they were going to do is make it so that 
If a bounty hadn't been claimed after two years, Bounty Source would keep the money, which is not great, especially as they were going to put this in place on the 1st of July, and then any bounties that were more than two years old at that point, they would keep all of that money. So essentially, they would get a shitload of money. The community didn't react very well to this, as you might expect, and so they've done a U-turn on it. But either way, it has somewhat tainted Bounty Source, and now the likes of XFCE and others are seriously thinking about whether to move away from Bounty Source. And you can't really blame them, can you? Can somebody explain where the money comes from for Bounty Source? Is it individuals put into a pot, or is it a specific person with a specific problem offers to pay somebody to fix that for them? I think it can, it can be that, and it can also be groups of people who kind of jump on the same bug or issue that they, they add money to a pool. Yeah, or projects themselves can do it from donations or whatever. There's various ways you can do it. Yeah, and it, like it... Even withdrawing or collecting the bounty, you know, they take 10% as well. So it's not like you're just going to put one out and if it doesn't go somewhere and withdraw it, because I mean, well, like say it was two grand, that's 200 quid. Look at my math skills. (laughs) But uh, I mean, that's not insignificant. So uh, yeah. And they've, and they've got the, um, the money that's already in there, you know, in, in the blockchain. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say this, this feels like the conversation we had uh, last week or whenever it was, about the cost of running services like this, like who is ultimately responsible to pay for the things that um, the service is providing. But to understand that I could put a bounty on a particular bug that I want fixing, uh, not get a fix for that, and yet they would keep my money, seems like a generally bad idea. I did hear some commentary saying that it's not that simple to keep hold of money for a long period of time Mm. because that money isn't theirs and it's tricky when it comes to accounting. But I'm just not having that argument because that's their whole business model. If they can't figure that out, then what the fuck are they doing? I think that kind of makes turns into a a money lending situation like a bank, though. That's the only problem. Like, I I know sort of marginally about this given the fact that I'm self-employed that means if I charge someone for an invoice or do work and you know the money's not paid you're in arrears someone's going to have to pay somebody for that in in terms of VAT etc and I can see how they get fed up holding on to cash like that's generally why there's a timeout on your gift cards and stuff like that because they are essentially acting in a way a bit like a bank as well yeah but I mean there's just so many other ways they could have done it they you could nominate a charity or they could create their own kind of foundational charity where the money defaults to after a period of time which i'm sure a lot of people will be much happier with but how's that going to get their ico going though i don't <laughs> well yeah that's i think that's the kind of the problem isn't it is that i suppose that's what will's talking about is the ultimately these companies are here to profit from what we kind of understand as altruism i suppose mm. blockchain company and being shy shocker <laughs> Well, yeah, some people are saying that it all started to go downhill when Kanya, the uh, cryptocurrency blockchain people, invested in Bounty Source. It's never a good sign, is it, when blockchain starts getting involved in things. But that was a couple of years ago, and things have been all right since then, but maybe not so much now. A lot of people are speculating that they must be pretty low on cash or whatever. That's why they needed to do this. And so it's it's generally a bad sign when companies do a cash grab like this. But maybe it was just a great idea that someone had and 
then they realized from actually no, it was a shit idea. And so they've reversed it. In my uh, cynical mind, this is usually the least worst option that they came up with in some meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we should give them some credit for changing their minds. Um, The internet is very quick to jump on somebody having made a mistake. And the fact that they did change their mind can only be seen as a good thing. True. It's like when the shitty Tory government does a U-turn or something. <laughs> everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's everything, your NHS yeah. exact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I can't believe that they pissed around and pissed away all that money oh. only to come back to do... Three months. Yeah. It's all right. Apple are going to write it for them. Yeah. Well, Google and Apple. It's just what they should have done in the first place. I'm still not installing it, though. Even if they make it mandatory, they can fuck off. Absolutely. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use a distro like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS or FreeBSD or you can even upload your own custom image. Or you can use their one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lampstacks, WordPress, Discourse, or GitLab. I've been using DigitalOcean for years now, and in that time, they've added tons of new features, things like managed databases and Kubernetes, object storage, and recently, Virtual Private Cloud, which allows you to create multiple private networks for your account or team. The droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them all the way up to 192 gigabytes of RAM with 32 CPU cores and 12 terabytes of storage. But you can add block storage or object storage as you need it. And if you need particularly high amounts of RAM or CPU, they have droplets optimized for that too. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then, and first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon, it's very much appreciated. Remember that for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, and something that Patreon keeps hassling me to mention to you patrons is that they're introducing sales tax from July, so pretty soon. I don't know exactly what that means, I think it's only in certain countries... I don't know. I think it means that you're going to have to pay more if we get the same amount. So I don't know. But just be warned, you probably got an email from Patreon about it. So read it. And yeah, I'm doing what they said. Don't be shocked if you suddenly get charged more or whatever. Well, probably most of our listeners are in tax-free states of the United States. So they'll be all right. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. If you want to join the people supporting us and find out about that, go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And also a quick mention for everyone who turned up to the Fostalk Lite event last night. Um, I, it wasn't publicized very well, kind of for a reason, because I wanted it to be small and also because I forgot to mention it last time. Well, actually, I hadn't come up with the idea or I hadn't committed to the idea last time we recorded. So sorry if you missed out on it, but uh, it was good fun. Thank you, everyone who came. And um, the Ask Us Anything questions we'll probably do more of next time. There is a thread on Patreon uh, which you can contribute your questions to if you want. And uh, we'll probably do some more of those next time. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and upgrade with the code Late Night Linux to get free access to a beta of a new DevOps training site called Learned. 
The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this free offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with the code late night Linux. That's automation.link and the code late night Linux. So last time after we finished recording, Will, you said that you'd seen an article about netbooks and it was kind of a nostalgic look back at the era of netbooks. And you were saying how you missed that time. And so we decided we were going to talk a bit about that this time. But then coincidentally, in the two weeks between recordings, my Pinebrook Pro turned up. So that kind of ties in, I feel, uh, in a kind of Linux hardware, old and new type way. So let's set the scene then with netbooks. I can't help but feel, Will, that you are looking back on that time with rose-tinted glasses because netbooks were a bit shit, ultimately. <laughs> well, yes and no, I think. Like, 2008 was when the Acer Aspire 1 came out, and that was the one that I bought. It had, I think it was, yeah, Linpus Linux on it, and then that was easily replaced with Debian. It had a decent keyboard, it had Wi-Fi, it had an SSD, albeit a very small one. It had a webcam, it had an, uh, a USB port or two USB ports perhaps, a decent battery life, a 1.6 gigahertz processor, half a gig of RAM. It was a real computer and it was a very small form factor and it was cheap, right? It cost 300 quid for the sort of low spec one. And the comparable phone at the time was the, well, I had the HTC Hero, which was the one with a little chin and the trackball at the bottom. And that was a decent phone in those days. It had 3G. It had uh, a 528 megahertz processor versus the 1.6 gigahertz of the uh, Atom processor in the Aspire. And it had a three and a half inch screen and it cost £600, twice as much as the netbook. And so for wandering around using NetStumbler, playing at being a hacker, um, taking it to a data center and, and plugging in with a physical Ethernet cable uh, and, you know, just generally looking like a cool dude on the train was just it was fantastic. It was a great machine and I did real things with it. And it made me feel like I was, I don't know, um, uh, uh, a cyber what do they call them? Cyberpunk. Did it also come with a free balaclava and a hoodie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a, an Asus EPC 901 around that same kind of time. And I think it's thanks to that that I really started to explore Linux because I think I had Linux on my main computer, but I didn't want to mess with it. And so having this little EPC meant that I could try out all sorts of different distros and not worry about messing up my main computer and I loved that thing at the time until I gave it away to extended family. And occasionally I think, hmm, they're not using it anymore. I want it back. I want to play with it. But then I look at my pile of laptops and think, no, I must resist. Yeah, I had um, a Samsung NC10 and I loved it because it's just so portable. And I actually used it for real work. I mean, it, it's great when you're writing because they're, they're proper keyboards and it's proper Linux. Um, so I did a lot of work. When I traveled, it's just so much more convenient to just throw it in a rucksack and go away. The thing that always bugged me that I really wish that there was like a second gen was the screen resolution. The, the, the vertical resolution was like 600 pixels, wasn't it? Mm. And 
it, I hated that because there was nothing, especially in KDE, nothing would fit. <laughs> but I, I even got, um, I even got Hackintosh running on the NC10. I had to swap out the uh, Wi-Fi module and put something else in. But that's it. Just what that tiny little touchpad, I loved it. It was, it was a really good time. When I used to work in Glasgow, I used to buy uh, computer equipment from Novatech which was a seller based in the south of England somewhere, which gave us good prices and stuff. And uh, I got one of theirs, which I, I honestly can't remember anything about it. It's probably actually still here in a drawer somewhere. But it was, yeah, seller and low memory, low power. And uh, it was okay. It was quite handy. It'd be a great thing for taking on holidays where you didn't want to bring your actual proper laptop and have it get wrecked um, or stolen. Uh, but it did have this annoying audio problem where it sounded like there was ants with angle grinders <laughs> sawing away at the inside of the audio card. And it had this high pitch whine that you'd constantly hear. So I had to like unload the audio drivers from the kernel if you didn't want <laughs> to use anything like that before you went crazy. But uh, yeah, it was pretty low spec. I think that's an interesting angle on this as well, is that in those days getting Linux up and running on the devices. I seem to remember uh, the Wi-Fi cards being notoriously bad at um, Linux support, but you had that sense of achievement that you'd compiled the, the drivers or you'd compiled a kernel on the thing, and yeah, you know, you'd know, you fix the touchpad, you'd fix the, set, the bugs in the sound card, you'd fix the Wi-Fi. Um, I think that perhaps influences my uh, rose-tinted view. Yeah, I suppose with my EPC, when I originally got it, the main version of Ubuntu at the time, I think, was 8 or 4 or 8.10 or whatever. And you had to add some extra debs to get the drivers working for it, which was my uh, equivalent of hacking at the time because I'd just started using Linux. And But then I think if you waited until the next release, that worked. I think the, the stuff had been upstreamed into the kernel or whatever. And then from then on, it all worked. So it was a good learning tool for me as well. But the thing is that tablets came along, iPads came along essentially, and just destroyed the market. Mm. Um, and small form factor PCs went up market, didn't they, into the Ultrabooks. And the whole selling point of these netbooks was that they were low price. And then when low price tablets came and took that end of the market and they had to go for high end Ultrabooks, it sort of left a, a bit of a, um, a hole in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I have for a long time been looking for something with a real keyboard on it and ideally an Ethernet port. And those devices just haven't really been around. You've got uh, people who have taken a Raspberry Pi and shoehorned it into a laptop case, but I, somehow that's not the same. And I don't really know why, but it just didn't feel the same. Yeah, I'm actually exactly the same. We didn't talk about this before, but I've, I, I last, I bought an iPad when it first came out, the, the first version of it. And then I bought one just before Apple abandoned the, um, it was the first retina display version that they superseded like six months later. And I was really, really pissed off about that. And that's, <laughs> that's the last iPad I've got. And now they're so expensive. I want something mm. like that. And I don't want the stupid keyboard accessory in, to the same extent. And there's nothing else I could get a surface. Um, I want something with that portability with a keyboard. Yeah, an Ethernet port would be awesome as well. And there really isn't anything. I've not thought about it until now. And it's the cost factor as well. Like like Fallon was saying, you sling it in your bag and at the, let's say, £300 price mark, as it was those, it wasn't disposable, but you wouldn't lose any sleep over treading on it, mm. for example. Yeah. 
I also like the, the, the little cylinder where you used to plug in the power and where the battery was. That you, It was really good to grab out of a bag and hold and carry around. <laughs> when you talked about putting Raspberry Pis in laptop cases, that is fairly similar to what the Pinebook Pro is. That is essentially the Rock Pro 64 in a laptop case, but done well. And then the Pine Tab, which they put on sale in the last couple of weeks and has sold out now, that is like a lower spec ARM-based board. So it kind of is filling that niche somehow in that it's like Linux first hardware that is available to tinker on and is fairly low price. I mean, the Pinebook Pro is uh, $200, obviously plus shipping and tax and stuff like that. But we're kind of in that same territory, aren't we? Yeah, and the Pinebook itself is only $100 plus tax, et cetera, et cetera. And at that sort of price... It just seems like a, a no-brainer. I just have to have one of these devices. Yeah, well, full disclosure, I did get given this Pinebook Pro um, sort of as a review unit. I was promised it a while ago, but then things happened, including COVID and all of that, and I ended up getting it quite late. And it's not like these things haven't been reviewed a million times on YouTube and various podcasts or whatever. But um, what, what do you lot want to know about it then? Has it got an Ethernet port? <laughs> no, it hasn't got an Ethernet port. All right, scrap it. <laughs> but it has got USB 3, USB C, and USB 2. So two full size USB ports and a USB C port, which does video out. And um, obviously, you can use some sort of dongle with it to get Ethernet. That'll do. Yeah, it's not bad at all. What's the battery like? So I haven't done extensive tests, but good is the. Uh, the answer i charged it once and then used it for hours i don't know how many hours but i was trying out different um operating systems and kept cranking the brightness up to the max and everything and it was down to like 45 percent after probably five or six hours of use so mm. bloody good basically i mean it's it's passively called it's only arm based the screen is going to be what really kills your battery. If you use that on a, a slightly dim, you know, if you're in a dark room or something like that, it's going to last a hell of a long time, I would have thought, from my initial testing. And that's 1080p, I presume, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice screen. Now, I talked quite extensively about the Pinebook when I got that. Putting them next to each other and comparing them, basically everything about the Pro is better. So the screen's better, the keyboard's better, the touchpad's bigger and better. The performance is better, obviously. The speakers are a little bit better. The speakers still aren't great, but they are improved. They were pretty shit, quite frankly, on the $100 one. This one, you can watch a YouTube video and it's not painful. And also, I was able to connect to my 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi network, and I was able to get, at times, up to about 100 megabits per second-ish. So not too shabby for a device of this price. So what's the keyboard like? Could you do actual work on it? I would say so, yeah. I mean, I, the thing is, I'm the worst person in the world to ask about keyboards because I'm so not fussy. I just would accept anything, anything apart from that shit butterfly Mac keyboard, which is just painful to type on. Any sort of chiclet keyboard, I'm really not fussy. I, I don't find myself uh, missing any keys. I mean, any new keyboard takes a little while to get used to, but I've found that generally it's fine. It's it's not going to win any prizes, but it's fine. Can you get one with a UK keyboard layout? I have one with a UK keyboard layout. Ah, 
no horizontal enter keys for us. Funnily enough, I'm not fussy about that. My little Vivo book's got an American keyboard oh, layout. You monster. My, um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm fussy about so many things in life. But when it comes to keyboards, I'm just like, man, as long as it's not terrible, I'm fine. And I'll just get used to whatever layout. But yeah, you can get them in American or UK layout. What's the build quality like? It looks, I can, I can see it looks, it's got a magnesium alloy shell and it looks really rigid. And with the combined with the screen, it looks nice. But does it feel good? I mean, I know it's only $200, but it's nice to have something feeling good. It does. It does feel very well built, definitely. It feels rigid um, and it's very light. But then, well, it's kind of light, but but well built. And it's hard to describe, really. Like it, it's, it looks like it's going to be heavier than it is, but it's not so light that it's flimsy, if you know what I mean. It's, it's sort of reassuringly heavy. Can you swap out the RAM in it for something bigger? No. It's a system on a chip style. Yeah. No, you can swap out the storage, but no, it's stuck being four gigabytes of RAM. But what it comes with would somewhat make you happy, Phelim, and that is that it comes with Manjaro KDE edition plasma. As long as it's KDE, it's perfect. Yeah. And with it being Manjaro, it means that it's got the latest kernel and it's got uh, hardware acceleration and stuff. And it is a very good experience with that. I've tried a few other different operating systems with limited success in terms of acceleration and stuff. And I think that you're better off sticking with what it comes with for now. Clearly, it's all about the development community and you know people are trying out new stuff all the time and developing various images and you can even get Android and there's a, there's a huge list of images. There's one old Debian image which was really good, which I think used to be the default, uh, which is great, but I don't think it's actively maintained anymore, which is a real shame. And I did try out an Ubuntu-based... Oh, yeah, that's it. Uh, there's um, Ambien, which is basically Ubuntu. That didn't have acceleration, unfortunately. And um, XFCE, I've, I've not had much luck with XFCE and acceleration, put it that way. <laughs> you don't need it. Well, and in, t- in terms of video and stuff like that, it's a bit... You should, you should yeah. try a Steam Baron yeah. Oh, yeah, here that we might go, work. Here we go. Animations in XFCE are just ASCII art. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 16 colors now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Extended CGA. <laughs> but in Plasma, uh, Manjaro Plasma, you can watch 1080p uh, YouTube with basically no problems. It's very smooth. And you can 1080p local video as well works no problem with VLC or whatever. So, yeah, in terms of media consumption, it's pretty good. And it's got a headphone jack, so you've got that going for it. And Bluetooth, of course, if you want to go that that way. This paid advert sounds absolutely fantastic. (laughs) I look forward to getting one. (laughs) (laughs) We we all get one, right? Yeah. Uh, Well, who knows? But uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to be given it, I must say. And, you know, I am mates with Lucas because he used to live in London and we used to hang out in the pub and stuff. Um, Hopefully we're going to hang out again soon, actually, socially distanced. But we'll have to see if that works out. So clearly I am biased here. And, you know, I do want to make that clear. One last question as a sort of summary, then. If you were going away for the weekend, let's just imagine for a minute uh, that you can travel. If you're going away for a weekend to, let's say, from London to Scotland, you're going up to Edinburgh, would you take it with you or would you just use your phone? It's a good question. It depends on what I was doing up there. 
Yeah, I, I think I would take it with me. I may take another laptop as well, uh, depending on. But I suppose if I was traveling light and had to pick one, I don't know. It'd be I'd have to think about it pretty hard. I think. Mm, mm. All right, a very quick KDE corner then. Uh, Plasma 5.19 came out, and it was a bit ropey, in my experience, on this Pinebook Pro. It was a bit buggy, um, and that wasn't just me, was it? Alas, no. It came out, and it was meant to be a more polished Plasma, and it wasn't, because uh, K-Wallet was broken for me for a few hours on the day it came out. Um, I couldn't unlock it, something to do with just the way they stored the keys or whatever got updated in the library. That didn't work. They did fix it that day, so happy days. Um, but they released 5.19.1 pretty soon after and fixed a few bugs that I wasn't affected by that other people were, um, which was uh, some system tray issues and uh, alignment issues, and there was various display issues too. So, yes, didn't clearly go too well that week, but uh, th- they did fix it up a week later, and... Um, it's all well available for the last week or so, so happy days again. One change that they made that I don't like is switching to a Windows-style icon-only taskbar, so you don't have the labels on your buttons on the on your panel, which I don't like that one bit. Yeah, I, I tried that once just to try and save space, but I, I don't like it either. And that's the beauty of KDE. You don't have to be stuck with it. There's three options overall, so you're grand. Yeah. I've been using it for years like that because I use a vertical taskbar, so it's the only way to do uh, that. Yeah, it would make sense, all right. right. Breakfast cereals. <laughs> and uh, another thing that came out was uh, Critter 4.3. And there's a great video that we'll link to as well where there's a, a decent run-through because there's a whole load of things there that I have no idea what they are. I mean, I noticed that the, the watercolor tool looks great. It looks amazing. Uh, and then he talks about layers and all sorts of crazy stuff that I haven't a clue about or how to use. I struggle to resize an image in it, uh, but that's just me. Um, but one thing it did bring up was uh, the Kate team released the uh, the Windows Store monthly statistics because there's a few other applications in there, which are Kate, Ocular, Firelight, Kyle, K-Stars, and Eliza. And they, they gave breakdowns for the months of the last 30 days of what they released. Now, one thing that I didn't see in there was Krita. And we, we know from before that Krita does have a version in the Windows Store for about roughly 10 euros. And it just, it just interesting. I mean, I'm really just throwing it out there and maybe they can let us know or we can ping them to, just to find out what, what are their numbers. Are they still doing well from it? Because we haven't had an update on that for a while. So I thought that was quite interesting. All right. Well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, probably with some Ask Us Anything questions. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.